Hi, this is Yolanda, and I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And uh, we're on page 267, um, just at the beginning of chapter 28. Well, a few pages in. <laughs> the um, heading of this section is Westward Ho. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. The time between my return from the dedication of East Delavan and my departure for California was spent in the routine of office and church work. On December the 27th, I left my home en route for San Francisco, whither I had been called upon business of a personal nature with my old-time friend, William Anderson, and for the purpose of attempting to adjust some church difficulties in the Oakland branch. Stopping off at Salt Lake City, I spent the New Year holidays of 1888 there, visiting my relatives and friends, preaching to the saints almost every evening in their little chapel, making new acquaintances and renewing old associates. Among my calls was one upon Governor West, where I met several members of the state legislature, including Abraham Hatch. One thing I recall in connection with this latter gentleman was that on the night preceding I had dreamed of meeting him, and when I did find him in the governor's office, in every particular, his appearance matched that of the man of my dream, although up to that moment I had never seen him. At the time of this visit I did not see my cousin Joseph F. Smith, although I spent some time most agreeably with my cousins John and Samuel. I had an interview with Edward Tullidge, who presented me with a copy of his book, Life of Joseph the Prophet. Among friends whom I enjoyed again were the various members of the families of Warnock, Hudson, Robinson, Clark, Barrows, Rainsimar, Wilson, Foreman and Wright. There was also Elder B.F. Cummings of the editorial staff of the Desert News. He had married a daughter of Elder David Williams, a Welshman, who for some time was a member of the reorganised church at Canton, Illinois. After a family in business there and at St. David, he joined in with the Utah church. I was invited to dinner, but was prevented from going by the death of a child of Abnebith Williams. Abnebith Williams. Excuse me, uh, tripping over my words trying to pronounce that. Um, and another day was set for my visit. Going at the appointed time, Mr. Cummings did not put in an appearance. I had supper with his wife and family, however, who treated me very courteously. She had married him as a polygamous wife, but had managed in such a way that at the time of my visit she was his only spouse. As I shook hands with her at parting and thanked her for her hospitality, she said with tears in her eyes and her lips a-quiver that she was just the same as when I had seen her in her father's home in Canton, implying that while conditions had resulted in her marriage and removal to Utah, her faith had not changed. When I moved to Independence in 1906, Mr Cummings was living there, in charge of the Lyona, a periodical of the Utah church. The Mrs Cummings, with whom I had supper on that occasion early in 1888, was still his wife and apparently the only one. Mr Cummings always met me cordially and appeared friendly. I made no effort to reach many outside our own circle on this winter visit to Salt Lake City, but enjoyed my stay there very much indeed. Next heading, the Bay Cities. 
It was later in January when I reached San Francisco and began active labours with the branches there and at Oakland after finishing my business with Brother Anderson. He was carrying papers in the city at that time, living with his second wife and in political association with an active American element which was opposing Chinese immigration. Inconsistently enough, these Americans continued to employ Chinese labour and to patronise Chinese artisans simply because they were cheaper than others. All the different kinds of seafood I had come across in my life seemed pleasing to my palate, but I must confess that when Brother Anderson placed a dish of shrimps before me, for a little while I hesitated. They looked so much like crickets or grasshoppers. However, I soon learned how to get the delicate meat from the shells and to thoroughly enjoy this variety as well as others. Many members of the church in San Francisco and Oakland were included in my constant rounds of calls. I should like to mention many of them more specifically, but must try not to give this volume undue proportions. Suffice to say, my contacts with them all were usually very pleasant and profitable. In regard to the difficulty at Oakland, I may say that the branch was then under the presidency of Brother Hiram P. Brown, a man whom I had first met in Northern Illinois when he was a resident and practicing lawyer of Waverly, Iowa. From there he had removed first to Sacramento, thence to Oakland, where he lost his first wife and married a second, this time a widow, whom he had converted from the Catholic faith. Some of his children had left home and were taking care of themselves, and he was living quietly in his domestic relations with wife and daughters at the time of my visit. Under his administration and with the help of George Bartholomew, the famous horse trainer, William Nethercole, William H. Hart, Joseph Burnham and other saints, the little branch had prospered and had succeeded in building a very excellent little chapel. Brother Brown was an American, his wife was Irish, Brother Burnside was Welsh and Brethren Hart and Nethercole were English. This mixture of national tendencies and traditions and perhaps some prejudices may have accounted in some measure for the clashes and opinions which had arisen among them. In building the church, Elder Brown, as chairman of the building committee, has secured a loan of some hundreds of dollars from Brother Muff from Brother Bartholomew, arranging that the title of the property should be held by Brother Bartholomew in trust for the payment of the money, while he, Brown, acted as custodian. It seems that some members thought Brother Brown should surrender this custody and permit other officers to take charge of the church, and they were attempting to compel him to do that step to take that step considering the differences and the high feelings that had developed over the situation i found i had a very difficult task before me i counseled the brethren especially brother hart to drop the controversy pointing out to him the fact that elder brown held an advantage and as agent for brother mark Bartholomew, could lock the building against the branch until the loan was paid as best I could, I continued to labour patiently with them all, and finally succeeded in getting them to arrange for a business meeting at the house of Brother Hart, there to seek, if possible, a final and amicable adjustment. At this meeting, I sat between Brethren Brown and Hart, one of whom, to my certain knowledge, and I strongly suspected the other also, had a pistol in his pocket. After a season of deliberation, we engaged in prayer. Upon arising from our knees, Brother Hart extended his hand to Elder Brown in a token of amity, acknowledging his fault and asking forgiveness. 
Brother Brown had lost one eye many years before, which loss gave him a rather grotesque appearance at best, but upon this occasion the expression of his good eye did not help to improve his looks or create in the beholder a feeling of confidence and trust. He glared up at Brother Hart, refused the proffered hand, kept his own in his coat pocket, and openly spurned the attempt at apology and reconciliation. Brother Hart tried once more, proffering goodwill, frankly, and in the kindest of spirits. Upon Brother Brown's second refusal to take the hand so courteously extended, I felt rather indignant and told Brother Hart he had now done all that was necessary on his part. I advised him to go about his affairs and pay no further attention to Elder Brown whatever, urging him under no circumstances to again offer his hand to Elder Brown until that gentleman should approach him with a frank apology and attempt at recon reconciliation. <coughs> Sorry. Thus the meeting closed without any coalition having been formed, and we separated rather dejectedly. Because of the stand I took upon this incident, I subsequently learned I, too, came in for a portion of the lawyer elder's ire. A disturbing element had also entered into this group in the person of one John Parson, an Englishman who had been one of the participants in what was called the Morrisite movement under the leading of John Morris and John Banks. He had come to California from his home in Nevada and Dublin in spiritualism had attended seances and demonstrations of that cult. Visiting the homes of the saints of the Oakland branch he had taught his peculiar theories and aroused the severe antagonism of Elder Brown and perhaps others. Hence I incurred further trouble and further censure from Brother Brown for the reason that when John Parson presented himself for baptism under conditions I could not refuse. I administered the ceremony against Brown's earnest protest even at the water's side. The baptism was performed in the font in the little chapel, Emily, one of the Brown's daughters, and some others being inducted into the kingdom upon the same occasion. My baptism of John Parson was performed under the express condition that he would at once leave California, return to his home in Nevada, and as soon as possible enter the field as missionary elder and prosecute his labours faithfully as a minister for the truth he was an able man and i believed him to be sincere so under the terms of this promise i tended to the right i provided him with money for his fair home expecting that he would go at once but i am sorry to record that he did not keep his promise or live up to the terms of our agreement instead he remained in the vicinity of san francisco until he was taken sick a few months later then he returned to his home only to die a short time after his arrival there in this way, one cause of local trouble was forever removed. Some other elements of discord were also soon moved aside in a rather grievous manner, for Elder Nethercote and his son united with the Utah Church, and Elder Brown was stricken with paralysis from which he died. There had been a judicial inquiry into the Parson case before my visit, but the decision was only a shifting of responsibility and hence unsatisfactory. I did not make it my decisions in the matter or reach my opinions on the subjects of controversy, which had caused such dissension until I had taken time to read the findings of the prior investigation and obtained as full an acquaintance with conditions and factors as possible. There was a Dane... Paulson by name, who at one time was in charge of a Brighamite publication at Copenhagen. He was an excellent physician of the homeopathic school and was practising in San Francisco at the time of my visit. I made his acquaintance and we became good friends. 
He had become interested in spiritism, had allied himself to the movement there, and was receiving so-called communications from the dead and living of the past. Unfortunately, he had proved unfaithful in his domestic affair, and thereby created considerably considerable of a scandal. Of this I knew little and cared less, because I held nothing in common with his spirit faith and practice. I admired him for his talents and ability, and appreciated the thorough friendship he always showed me showed for me as far as in his lay in him lay upon the occasion of this visit of mine to the bay cities he called upon me and invited me to visit him at his home in the southern part of oakland there i found he had a comfortable establishment and an unusually fine garden with vineyard and fruit trees he had a room filled with paintings supposedly of his progenitors for some hundreds of years back spirits painted these he took great pleasure in showing me, and I passed a few hours in his company examining them. Noticing the marked characteristics of their faces, I felt beyond a doubt that his spirit portrait painter had fooled him rather badly. The artist, evidently a poor draughtsman, had produced an original likeness, and then, in an endeavour to keep up a family resemblance, had practically duplicated it in painting the others in the collection. When in company with Brother Hawes, I called upon Lawyer Brown in his anger. That gentleman charged me with being unfaithful to my trust and gave me a tongue-lashing for consorting with John Parson and Dr. Paulson, stating that if I did not stop it and succeed in avoiding both of those men in the future, I would become an infidel or be insane inside of six months. Brother Hawes started to interpose a protest against this rebuke but i stopped him assuring him i could attend to the matter myself i told brown that my services and all i had of life and ability belonged to the church i loved but that my wife my family and my personal friends were my own and i would allow no man to dictate to me as to whom i should admit to my home or whom i should recognize as my friends i told him i did not intend to intend to drop those i esteemed as friends simply because some of my church associates requested it and added that i felt sure he would see his mistake and correct it this was the only reply I made to his tirade. My surmise was soon justified, for the next morning Brother Brown came to me as Brother Lincoln at Brother Lincoln's home, confessed his fault and asked my pardon, which of course was freely granted. He was an able man, but a degree of business failure had unsettled him and undermined his health, and he did not long continue, as I have related. Next heading, J. M. Terry in charge of at Oakland. Following my visit and the rather tragic removal of certain ones later, I am glad to say peace settled over the Oakland branch. Recovering from the days of stress and strain, it was continued. It has continued to operate more tranquilly, and today exists under the kindly administration of Elder John M. Terry. The old church building, once the centre of controversy, was sold and the members established themselves in a better church home, more favourably located. At the home of Brother Simeon Stravers, I performed the marriage ceremony which united his daughter Lottie to J. H. Millard. I enjoyed the visit there with this good friend whom I had met in 1876. His foster father, Earl, was dead. Others whom I had met on my first trip had removed. Brother Mills to Southern California, as also J. M. and Stephen Y. Horner, brothers of Sister William Hopkins of Lamono. Next heading, Adown the Coast. 
It was the unusual date of February the 29th in this year of 1888 when I left San Francisco for the southern part of the state going via the Southern Pacific Railway. For me this trip held some delightful surprises. I had traversed the route before with brother Daniel S Mills but then it was by carriage. Now my interest and attention were all agog from the first to the last bit of that journey by rail. One who is accustomed to the methods used in building mountain roads and who is familiar with the marvellous achievements of civil engineers in overcoming the obstacles offered by nature in that rugged country might smile at the curiosity and amazement with which I viewed our progress. Toward the close of the day we ran into a little corner of a valley nesting at the foot of the mountains and passed a little hamlet called Agu Caliente, meaning, I was told, hot water. Then I wondered how we were ever to get out of the pocket which seemed to be, which seemed to hedge us in without retracing the route over which we had just come. But we just skirted along the foot of the hills for several miles and then, doubling back, chugged along in the opposite direction but on a slightly higher level, making a fairly good upward grade all the while. Soon we found ourselves directly above the village we had lately left. Only about half a mile away, we could look down upon it, over the edge of the slope we had been climbing by means of that long loop. There were two engines at the head of the train, pulling us sturdily and noisily along, zigzagging across the mountainside, sometimes in one direction, sometimes in the other. At last, to my great astonishment, we seemed to be rushing head-on directly into the mountain itself. It seemed inevitable that we must either crash into it or come to a dead stop just short of disaster. We did neither, for again it was demonstrated that man's ingenuity and skill had triumphed over difficulties. The road just tunnelled right through the spur, turned on its track round the end, crossed back above the way we had come, and on we sped once more, horizontally hugging that rugged declivity. Finally, we reached Tehachapi Pass, where our train came to a panting stop, for this was the high point of the climb. One engine was detached and left behind as we resumed a similar zigzag course down the other side toward the desert. I took a, clean, a keen delight in these exhibitions of the marvellous engineering skill through which many problems of rapid transit over nature's barriers had been met and solved. The track from here to Los Angeles was quite level for nearly 100 miles. Across the desert I could see the tree cactus in its beauty and vigour, with trunks like live oak devoid of small limbs, the rabbit and grease brush the white sage of the wilderness, and ever and anon the measureless waste of shining sand. At Los Angeles I was met by brother E. L. Kelly, who became my companion for the remainder of my stay in the West, at the hospitable home of brother Fred Schnell. I found welcome during my stay in the city, where my time was spent in considerable church work. I renewed acquaintances with the families of Captain Howland and his sons Joseph, William and Charles, with brother John Morris from Australia, with sister Badham and son William, brother and sister Joseph Burton and numbers of others. Next heading. Rest Salt in San Bernardino. It was past the middle of March when we left Los Angeles over the motor line 
and St. Patrick's Day when we reached San Bernardino. There I was domiciled with Elder Keeman C. Smith and family for the rest of my visit. When I left home, it had been my intention to be gone for an indefinite length of time. I felt I should try to obtain a much-needed rest and recuperation, which was impossible for me to get while remaining at my desk in the Herald office. In the fall of 1876, I had been first attacked by an aggravated form of facial neuralgia, perhaps a result of defective teeth, from which I had suffered more or less ever since. Frequent and prolonged exposures to the inclemencies of the weather found in the Middle Western climate, in which I lived during the 16 years of my active work in the ministry prior to that time, in which work I'd always disregarded the weather, summer shone or winter storm in labouring appointments at home and abroad, had not helped to protect me from the affliction. Notwithstanding this handicap, I had conformed to my youthful habit of pursuing whatever course of duty or labour was before me, without allowing any sort of conditions to deter me from its performance. I had continued to travel, preach, write and otherwise minister, even though it was often necessary, necessary to perform those labours under excruciating torture of pain. Frequently, I have had to pause and hold myself firmly in hand to await the passing of paroxysms and to regain the composure necessary for me to proceed with the task in hand. I can remember sitting with my watch in hand during a railway journey and noting that each passing five minutes marked a paroxysm in the right side of my face, which would last from three-fourths to one and a half minutes of time, this intermittent distress continuing for hours and hours. Under this persistent affliction, I had grown extremely weary and had decided before leaving home that I would attempt to rest and get in a better physical condition before again taking up my active duties at headquarters. Next heading, Calls from the East. Therefore, when I arrived in San Bernardino, I expected to remain for the entire summer, but immediately it seemed that the devil had suddenly remembered a fondness for me, for from different places all over the church complaints began to reach the office in Lamoni, which I had left in charge of my associate in the presidency, Brother W. W. Blair, that required action and with which Brother Blair seemed unable or unwilling to cope. Thus it happened that while I had not intended to attend the conference, I found there was to be no respite for me. Yielding to the insistent and imperative request of President Blair, I felt obliged to return home, making a brief round of several branches in Southern California in company with local elders, Brother Kelly, and I finally returned our faces reluctantly towards the east. And that is the end of chapter 28. Thank you for listening. I will continue chapter 29 in the next episode.